0: We are continuing in our series on Sunday evenings entitled Defending Your Faith, with tonight being the second part of a look at the monotheistic religion of Islam, one of the three great monotheistic religions of the world, the other two, of course, being Christianity and also Judaism. And if you remember, last time I told you that we were going to look at Islam in three ways. You remember I said that we were going to look at Islam by way of its origin and history, which we did last time. And then secondly, we're going to look at the theology of Islam, which we will introduce tonight. And then next time, we'll finish with that and include our third outline point, a way to evangelize Muslims. And there you have the outline, the origin and history of Islam, the theology of Islam, and then thirdly, the evangelization or the reaching out to Islam. And you you may remember from outline point number one last time that Islam I said, was the fastest-growing religion in the United States. It's growing at a very, very rapid rate. And there are probably somewhere around 5 million Muslims who live and worship in the United States. Indeed, it's growing even at a rate of somewhere between 4 and 6% annually across our country. It's a religion that is growing at such a rate that it must be reckoned with. I said to you last time it is a multidimensional religion which really ought to be understood by Christians so that we might be used of God to reach them for Jesus Christ, which we'll talk about tonight. And I want to at least begin tonight to develop the theology of Islam. As I continue to read and study about this very, very important religion, I am aware of the fact that it is so multidimensional that it really is not possible to talk about all of the theological aspects of this particular religion in one setting. And so, tonight and next time, I want us to discuss a number of of issues about the theology of Islam. For instance, I want to talk about the Islamic view of the Quran, their Bible. And we'll do that tonight, and we'll occupy all of our time tonight talking about that particular theological topic, the Islamic view of the Quran. And then next time, I hope to develop the Islamic view of Allah. Uh, that is the name for, in that religion, their God. And then I want to discuss the Islamic view of Muhammad, the founder of Islam, and compare him to the founder of Christianity, Jesus Christ. And then lastly, in our theological section, I want to talk about the Islamic view of man, sin, and salvation. And so that will give you an idea of what we're going to try to accomplish at least tonight and next time. Now tonight, I want us to discuss... What I think is a very fascinating subject, and that is the Islamic view of the Quran. Now, even though Islam recognizes all religions' divine documents, especially the Old and New Testaments of Judaism and Christianity, the Muslim holds the Quran as his sacred and holy book. Remember that Muhammad did not write down these revelations that he claimed to have received from the angel Gabriel, but he recited his thoughts orally. And after he died, his followers took these oral recitations, these recitings of his words, and they codified them in a book we now know as the Quran. now I need to say at the outset that if you were to study Islam in any of the major books on the topic or maybe from the Encyclopedia Britannica or from some particular history book that you may pick up and begin to read, you'll see that the word Quran is spelled many different ways. For instance, it's spelled Q-U-R-A-N. Sometimes it's spelled K-O-R-A-N and there are even derivations from those two as well. And so I don't want you to be confused if you were to begin to read on the subject, that's all referring to the Islamic Bible, the Quran. So one of the key points of dialogue with Muslims, in fact, I believe the key point, is to have them acknowledge that the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament was written first, and only after that was the Quran developed. Now, that'll be a very, very important thing for you to know in a little bit as we discuss further this aspect of their theology. This, I believe, is the most important matter of discussion between Muslims and Christians, and that is this issue of the Quran: how it came to be, what it is, whether or not it has inconsistencies, how it's compared to Christianity, what are the strengths and weaknesses, What are the similarities and dissimilarities? And how are Christians and Muslims to dialogue about their holy books? That's what's really going to occupy us tonight. Now, normally, with a Muslim, they would respond to that question I posed a moment ago about the Old and New Testaments by saying that when Muhammad received his revelations from God, it was because the other scriptures, that is, the Old and New Testaments, had been corrupted. Hence, he would say, there was a need for the final revelation from God that he, Muhammad, was to have received all of these particular sayings, these recitations, these writings that were ultimately codified by his sayings, that that was a genuine need on the part of the world because the Old and New Testaments had been corrupted and God, with a final revelation, gave through Muhammad the inspired book for which all of us now need to bow our knee and that of course is what muslims all across the world believe that the quran is to be venerated the quran is to be worshiped that it is to be considered the holy book in all of the religions of the world they don't reject the old and new testament they don't reject the hebrew old testament or the greek uh, new testament the hebrew old testament the greek new testament the greek Bible they don 't reject those things, but they say that they had become corrupted through the years, and therefore God wanted to give a new revelation in the form of these sayings, which has now completed or finalized God's will and word to man in a very, very helpful book by Bruce McDowell and an islam a former Islamic person by the last name of Zakah. Very, very excellent book called Christians and Muslims at the Table, published by Presbyterian and Reformed Publishers. They say this The Quran makes it clear that Islam is the last and most complete of the revealed religions. That the sacred book, the holy or noble or glorious Quran, cannot be abrogated. That the Prophet Muhammad is the seal of or the end of the prophets. What they're saying is that Muslims believe that what Muhammad received from the angel Gabriel and then recited to his followers, by the way, that's what the word Quran itself means, it means to receive or to recite, is to be understood as having come from God Himself. Therefore, it must be by its very nature a holy book. In fact, they believe it to be so holy that even the paper and the ink on which it is written is sacred. McDowell and Zaka again write, Avoid offending your Muslim friends by putting the Bible on the floor, near your feet, or below your waist. Muslims treat the Quran with special care by keeping it on a stand and storing it on a high shelf. Do not share with your Muslim friend from a Bible that has been written in, underlined, or highlighted. This, too, would be seen as not treating it with proper honor. For Muslims, the Quran, in the form of paper and ink, is sacred, not just its content. In folk Islam, the Quran is thought to have magical powers. Portions of the Quran may be written on a piece of paper with ink that is then washed off to be used for magical purposes. The Quran is used in divination by closing one's eyes, saying God's name, reciting the Fatiha, and drawing one's fingers from the back of the Quran through its pages. The Quran is opened where one's finger enters and one reads the first verse on the page. That's very interesting and it's very different from the kind of thing that we would pursue in our Christianity, but that is what Muslims involve themselves in. Now, to give you an idea about the Quran itself and its length, it is basically said to be slightly shorter than our New Testament, and it is divided into 114 chapters called surahs. And these surahs vary in length with, interestingly enough, the longer surahs being listed first and the shorter surahs being put last. And as a result, really, even irrespective of the content, the surahs as they are listed by length make for a not very much chronological book. Very confusing to read, and according to another set of authors, Norm Geisler and a a fictitious Islamic name, a last name by the name of Salib, uh, one who wanted to write... uh, undercover so as not to be uh, having a bounty put on his life which often is the case you remember a a number of years ago that a man by the name of Solomon Rushdie wrote about the satanic verses in the Quran and had a bounty put out on his life until uh, just a few years ago he converted himself to Islam and that bounty was taken off so it's a very very serious thing well according to these authors Quote, one critical Muslim scholar, Ali Dashti, claims that, quote, unfortunately, the Quran was badly edited and its contents are very obtusely arranged, unquote. In other words, just simply because they arbitrarily decided to put the longer chapters first and the shorter chapters last, there is no chronology in the Quran. It is hopelessly muddled in terms of trying to determine a chronology. Of course, in our Bibles, we start out with what we believe is a right chronology, in the beginning God. And we finish it by the idea of the Lord Jesus coming back for us quickly. Well, that's not the case with the Quran. It is in no chronological order. And this, of course, even though for us it would be said to be confusing, it would be said to be uh, bizarre, Uh, For the Muslims, for the religion of Islam, they would say that is exactly the way God intended it and this is a holy book and it's a perfect book and even what we're talking about tonight could be considered in their minds blasphemous. Those who believe, quote, the absolute perfection of the language of the Quran is an impregnable dogma, unquote. In other words, everything about this book is holy. That's why in their religion, they believe that the Quran is absolutely sacred and holy and divine. So much so that even when you read about what they think about the Quran, sometimes you're even saying to yourself, they attach so much divinity to this book that it almost seems like in and of itself a person. That's how much they venerate this book. Now, how do you approach the aspect of the so-called divine writings of Islam? I spent a great deal of time asking myself the question, how would we approach this book so as to be on one hand, not unnecessarily inflammatory, and yet at the same time to give you the necessary information that you need to have if you were to come in contact with a Muslim? And in fact, even after part one was finished last time, a couple of you came up to me and said, I actually work with some Muslims. We've actually had some level of dialogue, and you were asking me to give you some kind of strategy. And I want to be able to do that tonight. I want to be able to point out a number of areas about the Quran that you may not know, and in fact, Muslims themselves may not readily understand. I think this is going to be important. McDowell and Zaka, again, suggest that you not try to prove, and I think this is a very good point, try to prove Christianity from the Quran itself. Why? Because Muslims will have their own interpretations of the very passages that you attempt to point out. Instead, they suggest, when you're witnessing to Muslims, let the Bible speak for itself. And that really goes right along with what I have been saying in this entire series about both an offensive approach to Christianity and a defensive one. And what they're really saying is this. If you want to be able to defend your faith against the Muslims, go on the offensive. That is, instead of trying to attack them as to what they believe, simply communicate to them what you believe. Tell them what you believe is the essence of Christianity. Tell them what you believe about God. Tell them what you believe about the Trinity. Tell them what you believe about the veracity, the truthfulness, the inerrancy, the infallibility of the Bible, and why that should be standing as over against the Quran. Tell them what you believe about salvation. Tell them what you believe about the cross of Christ and what it's designed to accomplish. Tell them about heaven and hell. Tell them about the future. Tell them about what the Lord will do when he comes back to judge the world. Talk to them about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Go on the offensive with regard to Muslims. You say, why would that be important? Because that's exactly what they're going to do toward you. You engage them in dialogue. They're going to tell you everything about what they believe. They're going to tell you about their book, the holy book, the Quran. They're going to tell you about their founder, Muhammad. They're going to tell you about what they believe in terms of both religious practice and their history. They're going to go on the offensive with you in that dialogue, and rather than attacking what they believe, you simply go on the offensive and tell them what you believe. And in the midst of that, God the Holy Spirit is working in their hearts to share with them the truth of Scripture. That and that alone will be the only way that they come to faith in Jesus Christ. I really like what McDowell and Zaka say here. The Holy Spirit works in a person's heart through hearing the Word of God. Therefore, do not put an emphasis on reasonable arguments outside of Scripture. They, the Muslim, will usually not be convincing uh, to a Muslim and will be countered by Islamic apologetic arguments. God's Word judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This is what is missing in Islam. In other words, it's not really, even though they would try to make the case, it's not really a religion of the heart. And by the way, is it not true that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the, it says the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, that they are foolishness to him? Wouldn't it be better to affirm what you and I know to be true, and that is, there's nothing that I can say in terms of reasoned arguments that's going to bring a Muslim into the Christian faith simply by attacking what it is they believe. The very best approach is to understand right out of the chute that the natural man will not be able to understand anything that the spiritual man is giving him according to the Word of God. And if the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and able to judge the very thoughts and intentions of the heart, then you know your Bible. Know what you believe. Know the essence of Christianity and be able to defend it. Because remember, the heart of the issue with Muslims is the Quran. That's their holy book. And so they're going to know that book. In fact, in so many ways, they probably put Christians to shame with regard to what they do with their holy book because most of them memorize it. They say, well, that's easy because... Uh, if it's only the size of the New Testament, I might take a shot at that. But the Old and New Testaments, all of it to memorize? Well, it may not be that we have to memorize every passage, but it certainly should mean that we memorize the big picture of the Old and New Testaments. and so that's what we ought to do. That's really what ought to be at the heart of our understanding of our own faith. There's another reason why that would be important. And that is because later on when I share with you some of the inconsistencies about the Quran and the Bible, you can know automatically when you're discussing things with them, when they make a statement that the Bible teaches, and you can say, that's what the Quran says, but the Bible actually says something different. These authors, Geisler and Salib, write, the Quran is at the heart of Islam. If if its claims can be substantiated, then Islam is true, and all opposing religious claims, including those of Judaism and Christianity, are false. The Quran's claims to be the full and final revelation of God through Muhammad, the last and greatest of the prophets who supersedes Moses, Jesus, and all other prophets before him. It is of utmost importance, they say, for anyone who rejects Islam to understand what Muslims claim about the Qur'an and to examine the evidence Muslims offer in support of it. Very, very important statement. In other words, we must know what we believe about Christianity and it certainly is a very important thing when you're dialoguing with Muslims to know what the Qur'an teaches. One important element in the way Muslims defend the Qur'an as over against Christianity, is to state that the Quran is the equivalent not of the Christian scriptures, but they believe of Christ Himself. You see, that parallels what they really believe about their book. They believe that it's so holy that it can almost be personified as a person. And so they don't really believe that the Quran is parallel or equivalent to the scriptures. They believe the, the Quran is equivalent to Christ Himself. Because they believe that the Quran is a revealer of the will of God, and since Christ is the revealer of the will of God, having come to reveal God the Father's will to us, then those two things are parallel. That's a very important thing to know when discussing issues with Muslims. One of their great authorities, Abu Hanifa, expressed it this way, the Quran is the word of God and is his inspired word and revelation. It is a necessary attribute of God. It is not God, but still is inseparable from God. Muslim scholar Yusuf K. Hibish wrote this, It is not a book in the ordinary sense, nor is it comparable to the Bible, either the Old or New Testaments. If you want to compare it with anything in Christianity, you must compare it with Christ Himself. Interesting. Christ was the expression of the divine among men the revelation of the divine will, that is what the Quran is. See, they want to be able to say that the Quran is really an expression of God just like Christ is an expression of God. So if you're going to dialogue with a Muslim, understand this, that he equates his holy book with Christ himself, not specifically the Old and New Testaments. Why? Why would that be an important uh, answer to give? Well, because they don't deny the Old and New Testaments. They don't deny them. All they simply believe about the Quran is, is, is that it is the superseding of the Old and New Testaments. So, with that in mind, how do we evaluate it? How do we evaluate the claims by these Muslims that the Quran is a holy and sacred and perfect and even a miraculous book? Well, I think you'll be fascinated by this. I certainly was. First of all, the Quran claims that it is perfect. That it is miraculous, came from God, and that because it is totally true, that is inerrant, that it therefore should supersede every other religious book and every other claim to authority. In other words, they have very exclusive claims about the Quran. They believe ultimately that it is the book, the book of books, and that it has no errors whatsoever. Now in terms of what you and I could understand about this in order to dialogue with Muslims is that in fact that is not the case. There are errors in the Quran. I'm going to give you a number of them. You're not going to be able to write them down. But if you want to listen to this tape later on, I think you can arm yourself with some of these inconsistencies and the pointing out of these errors so that you can know what you need to know about the Quran. I dare say not... Many of you will go out this week to Barnes and Noble and buy a copy of the Quran and begin reading it. And so I just want to give you some of these things that might arm you about this book. One of the most blatant errors in the Quran is the fact that some supposed revelations in some of these Muhammadan recitations were labor, were later abrogated by other revelations. And that is very much a point of dialogue between Muslims and Christians. You say, explain that again. Well, here's the issue. Muhammad believed that he had received direct revelation through this angel Gabriel from God, and so he began to recite these things orally. You remember I said to you last time that uh, he claimed for himself that he was not a literate man, that he was illiterate, and so therefore he wrote nothing. He believed he received these revelations, and he began just to preach. And as he preached these things, there were those who began to write down many of the things that he said, and directly after his death, they began to codify those in written form. And through the process of time, we began to discover that in these writings, that some of these earlier revelations supposedly from God, there were revelations that came after that, also being received by Muhammad that actually negated or abrogated some of the early revelations. And you can find that in the Quran itself. Let me give you a few examples. For instance, there was a command to stone adulterers. That was a revelation that Muhammad believed he had received from God. You were an adulterer in that particular religion, the religion of Islam, you were to be stoned. But later, it was abrogated or changed to be a punishment of 100 stripes, that's in Surah 24.2. Remember I mentioned a moment, a, mo- a moment ago about the so-called satanic verses on worshiping pagan gods. That's actually in the Quran. Well, that, of course, was replaced with some verses that omit it altogether. Here's another. There is to be no compulsion in religions. Surah 2, verse 256. In other words, There's not supposed to be any compelling of a person to be a Muslim. In other words, that particular religion is not supposed to be a religion that is taken by force and foisted upon another person. And yet, in another section of the Quran, Muslims are urged, quote, to fight those who believe not. Surah 9.29. And in Surah 9.5, fight and slay the pagans wherever ye find them. So clearly, there are inconsistencies or abrogations. Now, of course, Muslims have their answers to those things. They would say, for instance, that some of those things aren't really inconsistencies, it's just later revelation. But again, if they're going to try to bring you to the place of believing that this is a perfect book, then clearly, how are those later revelations abrogating the earlier ones, making the earlier statements inerrant? Perfect. In fact, if they are abrogated, then they're outmoded. They're needing to be replaced, which means it's not a perfect book. There are some other issues that I think are very fascinating. The Quran is not even considered by many of their own people to be of great quality, especially some of their scholars who are very, very honest. I mentioned a moment ago Ali Dashti, he comments. The Quran contains sentences which are incomplete and not fully intelligible without the aid of commentary. Foreign words, unfamiliar Arabic words, and words used with other than normal meaning, adjectives and verbs inflected without observance of the concords of gender and number, illogically and ungrammatically applied pronouns which sometimes have no referent, and predicates which in rhymed passages are often remote from the subjects To sum up, more than 100 Quranic aberrations from the normal rules and structure of Arabic have been noted. Now, you would expect that, would you not, from someone who was considered illiterate, someone who'd never written anything down, someone who really didn't understand the nuances of language, someone who would recite something, would not be grammatically correct, and then a a follower would write these things down. And then that would become codified and then these exact statements as they are written down would be then uh, pinned by these writers in such a way that when you study them, you realize that they're not grammatically correct. Not all of them, of course, but many of them. It's a very, very fascinating idea if you want to say that there are grammatical errors, there are consistency errors, there are gender problems, there are number problems, and yet you try to maintain that this is a perfect book. There's another area of concern that Christians ought to know, and that's this. The Quran, the Quran, in its claim, is that it is a continuation of the Bible. And I personally think that this is one of the most important elements in dialogue between Christians and Muslims. They would say, we don't reject your book. We see it as a holy book. We see Jesus as a holy prophet. We believe that. Muhammad is the seal of the prophets. He's the one who's the apex. He's the one who is the crystallization of all of God's revelation. But we accept your book and we accept your prophet. In fact, we would even say that our book and our prophet supersede all of those things, but not contradicting it, we believe that we are simply a continuance of all of those divine revelations from God. Not contradictions, but continuations. Well, if that were so, you would assume that you would not find any contradictions between the Quran and the Old and New Testaments. Is that what we find? Do we find that it is simply just a continuation of the revelation of God? No. What you find is actually some of the most simple and yet profound contradictions between those two holy books. Let me give you a few of them. The Muslim position... Is that the same God, Allah, revealed both the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, and the Quran? And yet, listen to this: the Quran denies that Jesus was crucified. Now, I could give you the references, of course, and uh, so many of you will be going to Barnes and Noble tomorrow to check those out. The Quran must agree with the older revelations because they are supposedly coming from the same God. And yet, if it did come from the same God, then why are there contradictions? Well, of course, again, the Muslims have their answer. And their answer is, that is because the Bible has undergone many corruptions. And because the Bible has undergone all of these many corruptions, the Quran is simply the last or the definitive word. But of course, that's a problem, because once you begin to do textual research, on the Bible, you begin to notice that there are so many differences between the Quran and the Bible that it couldn't possibly be true that all of the verses they claim are corrupted are in fact corrupted. You say, what are some of those? Well, listen to this. The Quran says that the creation took eight days. Although, in some other places in the Quran, it said that creation has taken six days. We know, of course, The Bible declares that creation happened in six literal 24 hour days. The Quran says that there are only two sons of Noah who went into the ark and one refused and was drowned. The Bible says that all three sons of Noah went into the ark. The Quran says that the ark landed on Mount Judai. The Bible says Mount Ararat. The Quran makes many misstatements regarding Abraham. That's probably one of the most common, and that's probably one of the ones that's most notable because people like to talk about uh, the the fact that there are multiple mistakes in the Quran about Abraham. For instance, in the Quran, it is said that Abraham sacrificed his son on Mount Moriah, his son Ishmael. But of course we know it's whom? Isaac the Quran says that Abraham had two sons the Bible says eight the Quran says that he had two wives the Bible says three the Quran says Abraham was thrown into a fire by Nimrod when the Bible clearly teaches that Nimrod was first and was born hundreds and hundreds of years before Abram couldn't possibly be true there are mistakes in the in the Quran about Joseph about Goliath, about Korah, about Saul, about Enoch, about Ezekiel, about John the Baptist, about Jonah, about Moses. Really amazing. You say, well, look, if you're going to come up with a religion and if you're going to use somebody else's holy book, it's probably a good idea not to have those kinds of glaring errors, right? Well, remember what I said last time. What I said last time was that when Muhammad received supposedly, allegedly, these divine revelations from the angel Gabriel, he did not know of Judaism or Christianity, at least in its historical form. Christianity had not yet come to a place of being popular and known where Muhammad resided. And so, most scholars, even Muslim scholars, agree that what Muhammad learned by way of oral presentation from those he came in contact with was really not Judaism, Judaism and Christianity at all. It was those stories, centuries after the founding of Christianity and, of course, Judaism, in which all he heard were really those stories which, when he began to listen to them, realized that those things must be Christianity when really those things weren't Christianity at all. For instance... In the 2nd century, there were a group of supposed Christians called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics began to influence the world, and they began to propagate their own religion. And as they began to teach all over the world, and as the influence of Gnosticism went, it began to be a masquerade for Christianity that really wasn't a Christianity at all. And so if you were an unsuspecting person like Muhammad and you began to hear from someone who was a quote-unquote Gnostic Christian and they began to talk about this eminence of Christ, this body of Christ, they began to talk about this, Gnostic, this Gnosticism, this secret knowledge that God gave them and them alone and they began to foist these ideas upon your mind and then they began to throw in maybe some ideas of a predating Judaism and they began to talk about Abram and Moses and Isaac and Aaron, and they began to talk with you about that, and you began to listen to those things, if you didn't have the facts, if you didn't have the Bible, if you didn't have the Old Testament, if you didn't have the New Testament, if you didn't know how to check that out, guess what? You would take some of that information and you would write that down if in fact you were inclined to do so, and if you did, it would probably be wrong. And that is exactly what happened. That is why there are so many mistakes In fact, just look up your Encyclopedia Britannica, the 13th volume, page 479. Listen to what it says about Islam. The deviations from the biblical narratives are very marked and can in most cases be traced back to the legendary anecdotes of the Jewish Haggadah and the apocryphal Gospels. In other words, you've heard some of those before. You've heard, uh, for instance, about the Gospel of Barnabas. The Gospel of Peter. Those aren't biblical gospels. They were written by someone. They were attempting to foist them upon the church as though they were legitimate. They were rejected by the councils of the church as not being biblical, and yet they would be disseminated far and wide. And if, in fact, Muhammad would have been influenced by one of these, he would have come up with ideas about Christianity that really weren't true at all. And that's exactly what happened. Encyclopedia Britannica goes on to say, much has been written concerning the sources from which Muhammad derived this information. There is no evidence, there is no evidence that he was able to read and his dependence on oral communication may explain some of his misconceptions. Example, the confusion of Haman, the minister of Ahasuerus with the minister of Pharaoh, and the identification of Miriam this is what he believed. The sister of Moses with Mary, the mother of Jesus. He was just confused. He was just wrong. You'll be interested to know that the Quran says that Noah's flood took place in Moses' day. The Quran says it was Pharaoh's wife who adopted Moses when the Bible says it was Pharaoh's daughter. Right? There are. So many of these. I was astounded as I continued to read about some of these things. The Quran has several errors, by the way, concerning Mary. But of course, the most notable is that it has major errors of theology regarding the person of Christ. For instance, in Surah 4, verse 157, in Surah 5, verse 19, and verse 75, and in Surah 9, verse 30, it says the following. Jesus was not the Son of God. Jesus did not die for sins. Jesus was not crucified. Jesus was not both human and divine. And Jesus was not the Savior. That's what the Quran teaches. That's what Islam believes. And it's very confusing sometimes for Christians because when they begin to dialogue, they might at least initially begin to think, well, this might be great dialogue because we have so much in common. Because they don't automatically reject Jesus. They say He was a prophet of God. They don't automatically reject the Bible. They say they believe in the Old and New Testaments. They have no problem affirming at least the roots of Christianity. Robert Morey, whose excellent little book, The Islamic Invasion, says this, While the devout Muslim believes with all of his heart that the rituals and doctrines of Islam are entirely heavenly heavenly in origin and thus cannot have any earthly sources, Middle East scholars have demonstrated beyond all doubt that every ritual and belief in Islam can be traced back to pre-Islamic Arabian culture. In other words, it's not really divine at all. He made it up. In other words, Muhammad did not preach anything new. Everything he taught had been believed and practiced in Arabia long before he was ever born. Even the idea of only one God was borrowed from the Jews and the Christians. This irrefutable fact casts to the ground the Muslim claim that Islam was revealed from heaven. Since its rituals, beliefs, and even the Quran itself can be fully explained in terms of pre-Islamic sources in Arabian culture, this means that the religion of Islam is false. It is no surprise, therefore, that Western scholars have concluded that Allah is not God, Muhammad was not his prophet, and the Quran is not the word of God. Now, having said all of that, and I wish we had time to develop all of these things, I wish I had the opportunity maybe to have you study with me all of these inconsistencies and all of these dissimilarities between supposedly a God who is producing both the Bible and the Quran. But I'll close with this. In Christianity today, right now, in our world, with all of those inconsistencies that I just shared with you, with all of those obvious errors which would lead any normal, rational person to come to the place where they say it's obvious that our God could not have produced both books, having errors in them, having inconsistencies in them. And if Islam, in fact, by its own nature and by its own holy book, says that Jesus Christ is not God, Jesus Christ is not the Savior, Jesus Christ did not die on the cross, Jesus Christ did not forgive sin, then you might assume, would you not, that Islam is not friendly to Christianity. You might assume that, right? You might assume that if they are saying all of the things that are in essence opposite of what we as Christians believe about our Savior Jesus Christ, that there would be a hostility between the two religions. And it is true, of course, that even historically there have been what some Muslims, not all of them, and even a small percentage, I remind you, who have committed what you and I have heard very many times on the news, a holy war, a jihad, where Islam's intent, especially from these very militant, fundamental Shiite Muslims, is to take over the world. And so many others would say, no, that's not what we're involved with. We're not saying that a holy war, an actual physical battle, is what we're all about. But certainly, even those who reject the militant fundamental kind of Islamic nations would still say we are intent on taking over the world spiritually speaking. And you would assume that with those who are fighting people physically and those who are battling with people spiritually that Islam is a force to be reckoned with and it is not our friend but our foe. It is antithetical to Christianity. And yet at the same time, there are actually people today who are saying that Islam is our friend. Why? Because number one, it is a monotheistic religion. And at least we can find common ground there that we believe in a God. Not multiple gods, not a pantheistic set of gods, but we are, as Christians and Muslims, monotheistic. And that's where they usually begin and then when they begin to talk and dialogue about some of these things, in an effort not to see the obvious differences between each other, they actually say, let's downplay the differences and let's upstroke all of the things that we believe that we can ultimately agree upon, which, as I've stated tonight, is really not anything. But, even within the walls of Christendom, even today, there are those who say, Islam and Christianity can possibly find a way at the bargaining table to band together with Judaism and, of course, within Christendom's Protestantism and Roman Catholicism, we can find a way to band together as monotheists and fight against the moral evils of our day. You say that's preposterous. How can Christians, whether they be Protestants or professing Christians as Roman Catholics, how can they, along with Judaism and Islam, come together? Because believe you me, it's not just okay to say because we're all monotheists, ultimately we're all serving the same God, we're all going down the same road, even if we take different paths. But that is precisely what is happening today. I shared with you some time ago this particular book by Peter Kreft called ecumenical jihad taking that Islam phrase jihad holy war and actually saying in this book he believes that it is possible that one day God will be accepting all monotheists. And in fact he even goes a step further and says even Buddhists. Listen to what he says. This is this is absolutely incredible. He says in the introduction, many of our former enemies, for example, Muslims, are now our friends. And some of our former friends, for example, humanists, are now our enemies. You say, well, I mean, Peter Kreft, who is he? Well, for many years, he was a teacher of philosophy at Gordon College in Wynnum, Massachusetts. That's the undergrad side of Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, a very evangelical school. And he and another man named Thomas Howard, who happens to be the brother of Elizabeth Elliot, they were released from their contracts at Gordon College because, being evangelicals, they left evangelicalism and became avowed Roman Catholics. And because of that, they were stripped of their title, they were released from their positions, and Peter Kreft is now a teacher of philosophy at Boston College. And he's a Roman Catholic, and he's saying that Muslims are now our friend And it is amazing to me what he really begins to say in this book. I want you to read a section, or I want you to listen to a section as I read as to what he says about Islam. Now, admittedly, Peter Kreft, he's a very, very good writer. He's a very, very clever man. He has had books that have been published by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And he's a man who is very highly respected in many, many circles. He has great fellowship with several notable evangelicals. In fact, he even dedicates this book uh, to a couple of them. And this is what he says. He says that there was a time where he was surfing. And as he was surfing, he had a vision. And he believes that he actually had an out-of-body experience. And in the midst of this dialogue with God in heaven, he began to have dialogue with others, including, and I won't read those, Buddha and Confucius Confucius, but he also had another dialogue listen to what he says Buddha's serene smile was so contagious that I found myself smiling serenely too and almost slipping into sleep when I was rudely awakened by a man with a black mustache flashing black eyes a red turban and a curved sword I did not like the look of him at all I silently prayed Lord deliver me from this man Imagine my surprise when these words formed themselves clearly in my mind. I will not. I cannot explain to you how I knew, but I knew these words were God's. Why, Lord, I asked. Because this man will teach you a more important lesson than even Confucius or Buddha. What lesson, Lord? He will teach you the heart and soul of all true religion. I was shocked by this since the man was evidently Muhammad. I wondered how a man who was not even a Christian could teach me the heart and soul of all true religion, but I could not argue with the Lord. So I asked, and what is the heart and soul of all true religion? The answer came from Muhammad in a single word, Islam. Are you indeed Muhammad? And are you truly a prophet? Are your words from God? And is your God the same as our God? Yes, yes, a thousand times yes to all four questions, he said. The only true first step is adoration, Muhammad said, the bent knee and the bent spirit, surrender, Islam. Kreft says, are you a Christian now or a Muslim? He gave what seemed to me an evasive answer. Why do you say or? How can one be a Christian without Islam to the one God? Because I thought his answer evasive, I challenged him more directly. If you come from heaven and not from hell, what do you say to this? and I whipped out my rosary and held aloft the crucifix as I would to Dracula. To my wondering eyes, Muhammad fell to his knees and crossed himself. My response was the only possible one. I bowed the knees of my mind to the words of the man who had bowed his knees to my Lord and his mother, though his words were not the ones I was expecting. Muhammad says, this is the only road that one can take. To the heights of victory, the low road of submission. Islam, obedience—a thing so simple a child can understand it. The child you must become again, if you are to enter his kingdom. The saying is his, not mine. I am only his prophet. He is the one. Uh, he is the one than whom there is in whom there is no other. La ilaha illa Allah. And he fell to his knees and bowed his back and prayed the comfortably condescending cultural chauvinism with which I had always unconsciously viewed those holy Arabic words and that holy Arabic deed seemed to have suddenly died in me and I asked myself whether my own tepid piety might not have had a more proper fire if I had bowed my back, my tongue, and my heart as completely as he and his his followers had. I wondered also whether my world could ever be saved in any other way Confucius and Buddha and Muhammad all came together in this thought that the only way to change our bad society into a good society like the one Confucius masterminded was by letting God do it, by Islam, as Muhammad put it, by Hui-Hu-Hui, as Buddha's spiritual brother Lao Tzu put it. I suspected then that the explosive growth of Islam in our time might be due to a simpler cause than any sociologist had yet discovered, that God blesses obedience and faithfulness especially when surrounded by unfaithful and disobedient cultures. I had nothing to say. So Muhammad answered his own question. It is a time for jihad, a holy war, a spiritual war. Rather, it is time to wake up to the fact that whether you like it or not, you are in the middle of one. I said, now aren't Muslims famous for confusing the two and fighting literal holy wars? Some, he admitted, about 5% of Muslims in the world believe that the jihad means physical war, killing infidels. But the Quran makes it quite clear that this war is first within oneself and against one's own sins and infidelities. But your people, the Arabs, are world famous for violence. Unlike your people in Northern Ireland, I suppose. But your whole history is full of He stopped me. Crusades and inquisitions and forced conversions and anti-Semitism and religious wars. I quickly realized that my argument was going nowhere except to blow up in my face. Let me try to explain, he said more gently, Islam and jihad are intrinsically connected for Islam means not only submission but also peace, the peace that the world cannot give, the peace that only God can give when we submit to him and this submission requires the inner jihad, a war on our war against God so we get the paradoxical result that peace, Islam is attained only through war, jihad and this peace also leads to war because the submission that it is, is peace that requires us to obey God's will and God's will for us is for us to become spiritual warriors against evil. I see, I replied. He goes on to talk about it. He says, I became a bit defensive and combative at this point. So, so you have abjured your Quran and then embracing our Bible instead? To my surprise, Muhammad shouted, no! How could I abjure a divine revelation? But how could a Christian believe the Quran is a divine revelation, I ask? How could he think anything else, was the reply. Tell me, what pagan philosopher came closest to the scriptures in knowing the true nature of God, do you think? Aristotle, I guess. And he had no divine revelation, but only human reason, right? Now compare the knowledge of God in the Quran with the knowledge of God in Aristotle. If it was my reason, rather than God's revelation, that was responsible for the knowledge of God in the Quran, then I was far away and. Far and away, the greatest philosopher who ever lived. I was to Aristotle what Aristotle was to a one day old baby. But how could the Quran be divine revelation? God does not contradict himself. That was just what we talked about tonight, right? How can God contradict himself? But the Quran contradicts the Bible at some points. How can divine revelation err? It cannot err insofar as it is a divine revelation, Muhammad answered, but it is not the same thing to say it is revelation and to say it is errorless. What? The light of God can fall on human windows clouded with fog. Your own church, the Roman Catholic Church, says the same regarding private revelation. This is This is ridiculous. This is what this man actually believes was a conversation that occurred in heaven in an out-of-body experience. And this man is not a kook. This man is a very intelligent man, and what he's doing by way of a very ingenious type of prosaic writing is to say there's a holy war going on, and that holy war is ultimately to be fought with Christians and Muslims and Jews and Roman Catholics and Protestants, and the sooner we realize that the moral evils of the day are to us the real holy war and not our war with each other. That's what he's saying. I resolved to have a second look at this man whom I had thought of as an enemy and now was beginning to reconsider as a friend. But I had no time to do or even think, for he faded from my view to be replaced by still another man, and that man was Moses. And then he says at the end of this chapter, first, as Confucius had said, I wanted to be accepted to be popular rather than to be a prophet. But even more crucially, I had planned in all four parts of this chapter to say something abstract, and this was corrected by my four teachers To something concrete. I had planned something ideological and I was corrected to something real, the man on the cross. I pulled out my rosary again and looked at its crucifix. As I looked at it, everything else faded away in its light. Moses and Muhammad and Buddha and Confucius and the wave that had swamped me and brought me there and the heavenly beach, it all faded away and like an earlier Peter coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, I saw Jesus only and that was enough. Now you see, it's that kind of creativity, it's that kind of cleverness, and ultimately that kind of influence by a Roman Catholic that will allow unwitting, duped evangelicals to believe that Islam isn't really our enemy but our friend. And on the back of this book, there are Roman Catholics and there are two very, very notable evangelicals. One of them says, Peter Kreft is one of the premier apologists in America today, witty, incisive, and powerful. On the front lines in today's culture war, Kreft is one of our most valiant intellectual warriors. And another says, who is one of the most prominent theologians in the world today as an evangelical, this racy little book opens up a far reaching theme. With entertaining insight, Kreft looks into the attitudes, alliances, and strategies that today's state of affairs requires of believers catholics protestants and orthodox alike need to ponder peter Kreft's vision of things preferably in discussion together what if he is right and you really come to the place where you say to yourself Lord am I going stark raving mad am I the only one who assumes that to read a book like this and to even consider the premise of such a book is to consider the very opposite of the real holy war that's going on today. You say, what is that real holy war that's going on today? The real holy war that's going on today is the battle for men's and women's souls. And to use the weapons that Peter Kress asks us to use are ultimately the weapons of destruction. Islam is not our friend. It is that which is against God. But I'll tell you what. The Bible says God even loves his enemies. And he reaches out to them. And the way he reaches out to them is through us, through the knowledge of our Bibles, and through dialogue with these people. And we're asking God to use us, holding our feet as it were, as we're grabbing for them as though we're pulling brands from the fire even though all of those groups, including Confucianism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, and Islam, are enemies of the cross of Christ, we are no less mandated to reach out to them, but not by some sort of unbiblical alliance, but by the truth of the Scripture. That's why we should know our Bibles, and that's why we should understand what these religions are. Not to embrace them like this, but to understand them, dialogue with them, But ultimately, to have nothing to do with that kind of alliance, but that which is true and faithful to the text of the Word of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, tonight we have considered this religion of Islam, and we've considered this one important point their Bible. And we see that these things are not to be so melted away so as to see Islam and Christianity and Buddhism and Confucianism and Judaism and Roman Catholicism as as though they're really just one more path to God. We need to see it for what it is. It's that which denies the reality of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It denies that He is the only way to God. And Lord, because of that, we we want to reach out, but we don't want to reach out in a false alliance. We don't want to be able to, to say what apparently this man Peter Kreft is saying, that ultimately that which is the war is the war of moral evil and we need to band together with all of these religious people, whether they be Christians or not, Lord, we know that's not the way. We know that's not the truth. We want to stand firm on what we believe. And when we go on the offensive, when we begin to dialogue with Muslims, may You give us a heart of knowledge and understanding. May You fulfill in us what Paul prayed to the Colossians, that we would be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding that we would bear fruit, that we would learn and grow, and that ultimately we would be used as Your tool, Your instrument. May You allow us to be valiant warriors of the truth. And we'll thank You in Christ's name.